All right. Thank you, Daniel. Well, dear friends, so glad to have you join us. And I know we've been kind of in a major uh, flood time, right? It's either rain or it's hot or it's whatever. But so we're just trying to remain flexible coming inside and outside. So just really kudos to our Sunday team that is always having to basically live with one foot raised, one foot raised, ready to pivot at any moment to help us gather both here and online. So um, thank you, God, for such awesome people. Um, well, what a, what a crazy couple weeks. Uh, I was I was uh, out of town and thrilled to be able to join you guys over Facebook and listen to uh, Jake's uh, mic-dropping sermon. I know we, we did have some technical difficulties because this is the nature of the season we're in, but I was still able to hear the whole thing despite that. I said, yeah, this isn't like an audiophile release that we're going to press on vinyl for posterity. We're just going to try to boost the levels of parts a little quiet so we can hear it again. But, uh, you know... The only reason Jesus never had any sound equipment difficulties is because they hadn't invented it yet. So anyway, so we're doing Daniel 11 in our ongoing series on Babylon, USA. And the basic premise is Babylon is an evil empire. And wherever you live in the world, you always juxtapose God's kingdom against whatever is ruling the place you currently live in. And now there's maybe a spectrum of Babylonianishness for each nation, you know. A nation that's running internment camps and stuff maybe is super Babylon. And a nation that is, uh, just, uh, is just passively letting people die but not caring about the poor may be of a different degree of Babylon. But every nation is Babylon. I'm talking about Babylon USA because I'm attempting to obey, obey Jesus when he says, take the log out of your own eye, and I am going on 50 years of being a professional American. I was born with that, I am a citizen, so I'm just gonna not be an expert of any other. Um, man, someone, Adrian was telling me she heard a phrase, someone called uh, the phone, your portable atrocity awareness device. The portable atrocity awareness device, have you seen that? It's like. And I would want to check out sometimes, but I realized, well, for so long, almost on a daily basis, something happens that either directly or indirectly affects people I love. So it's kind of like in the same way, like even you want to know how your loved ones are doing if you know a lot of people in a lot of different cultural situations. I feel almost tied to my portable atrocity device. Um, still figuring that out. But I uh, want to talk about our current state right now and what I've found to be so far the hardest passage of Daniel to wrap my head around personally, Daniel 11. This thing is just, it's mind-boggling to me. But I believe amidst the boggling of my mind, I believe God has highlighted something that is critically important to us, I actually believe to our nation, to our world, to the operating system of humankind, and to how we parent, how we spouse, how we friend, how we employ, or how we work. I, I believe what has emerged out of this passage that really uh, stood out to me 
in this amazing apocalyptic book is supremely, supremely relevant. So I want to pray that God will help me not to mess up communicating this and God will open your heart. So, Father God, uh, thank you for your love. Thank you for your pursuing, unconditional, ridiculous love to all of us, God. And help us as we marinate in your love to become improvisational actors of demonstrating that love in every possible situation. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So I'm going to kind of uh, read the Bible in the middle of this. And I'm only going to read a couple selections of uh, Daniel 11. In part because I don't think I can physically read it without tripping over my words. I actually tried making a flow chart of what goes on and diagramming it. And I said, wow. Uh, it was crazy. But the kind of our... our title and idea, big idea for today is faithful folks or folks of faith forsake fear in fortresses. Folks of faith forsake fear in fortresses or uh, the family of faith forsakes fear. Whatever, you know, any, you know, any FFFFF sermon you can imagine, you know, uh, or uh, faithful folks forsake fear in fortresses. So that I, listen, I know that's cutesy, but man, if we can actually grasp that, forsaking fear, forsaking a fortress mentality, if we can commit to that, what is possible for us in this impo seemingly impossibly screwed up world is amazing. So we've got Afghanistan, We've got Haiti, we have the divided America, we have uh, the border crisis, we have nations being ripped up by drug cartels and families trying to find out, is there a safe place for me to go? Kids being impressed into gangs or girls into prostitution in Central America. We have, um, you know, just the complete chaos of Afghanistan. Uh, we have a, a yet another, among all the countless refugee crises, crises in the world, there's actually refugee crises that haven't legally been defined as refugee crises for political reasons. So there's a lot of refugees that the world doesn't recognize as refugees. For instance, you live in a neighborhood, a drug cartel takes over, and you have a puppet government, and you're ruled by competing cartels, and you either join one gang or another, or you're killed. You're a mom and a dad. Your kids are entering teenage stuff, and you don't want gangsters to use your daughter, and you don't want the cartel to warp your child into a soldier of evil. And that is your choice in life. Your only choice is to seek refuge outside of that context. Well, I've just described several countries right now that are not, that we do not give people escaping what I think is worse than a zombie apocalypse. You know, zombie, the whole Walking Dead scenarios, you know, the dead aren't organized, the dead aren't smart, the dead move slowly. And even the Walking Dead, the people are what's scary. And uh, we, we in America will watch this sur survival horror and think, oh, if I were in this, and I said, guys, okay, talk about American advantage, American privilege is, you know this thing you're saying, if I was in this scenario, there's something worse that a great deal of our neighbors are in. 
Listen, uh, if you were living in El Salvador, it's 10 times scary than The Walking Dead if you want to protect your children. And we don't recognize them as refugees. Now, why am I saying this? Talking about refugees, um, this all really ties in. This is a rabbit trail. But man, we, this is actually a rabbit hutch with lots of rabbits that are all connected together. Um, so guys, the world's on fire. If you ever seen the R.E.M. song, The End of the World as We Know It, that's great. An earthquake, birds and snakes in the airplane, you know that song? It actually seems like it's the news wrapped uh, when you listen to it. I know that's an old band none of you heard from, but if you Google or YouTube The End of the World as We Know It, it's a good song. So, we've got the latest incarnation of ISIS, we have COVID variants, they're going to run out of the Greek alphabet to name them pretty soon, and, and today we're going to talk about the insidious harm of what people have come to call the fortress mentality. And if you Google fortress mentality, there's a lot of provisions for the term. Um, one that pops up in a lot of places agreement of how to define this because this term is used to describe how uh, liberal people behave, how conservative people behave, how uh, some workers for justice might behave and some workers for injustice may behave. I mean, fortress mentality is an idea that almost everywhere. So I want to read uh, it goes like this. And this is only one element. This is a situation in which a group of people feel they are under attack and therefore refuse to listen to any criticism or views that do not fit with their own position and aims. A situation in which a group of people feel they are under attack and therefore refuse to listen to any criticism or views that do not fit with their own position or aims. Now, I want to take three super large Christian denominations, you know, basically corporatized gatherings of many Christian churches that have a kind of top-down hierarchy that institute policies, specifically three of which that are very active in America. And this is not exhaustive, and I'm not even going to name them by names because then I would go on a million rabbit trails. But there is a weird theme, and specifically it is in organizations, and I've just noticed it's to exclude half of their members from informing policy are hotbeds for systemic child abuse, or let's be systemic child sexual abuse, and sexual abuse in general, and even rape culture. And what I mean by that is denominations where women do not have an equal voice to men. You, all, you have not found a system-wide context of child sexual abuse in an organization and contribute to policy. And I look at my own story. I remember a time, two times, I was a kid who did, was kind of bullied, didn't fit in, and felt disconnected. Prime target for people that would groom someone to sexually abuse them, right? occasions where my mom sniffed out that I was being groomed and she was just able with her innate intuition and she bear mentality that can rapidly 
engaged in the cognition that sees between the lines and sa says, my son could be in danger. I'm going to remove him from this context of danger. My mom couldn't explain the specifics, but from what I know now about this and having counseled so many people who've been abused, darn right was being groomed to be abused. And while the, there was no system to keep uh, safe, I had a mom that had the power and was given to protect me. All right? So we have three, and I'm not saying just three, we have three organizations have sought to either settle their systemic issues behind closed do doors through court settlements. They sought to blame the victim. They sought to cover up and hide the atrocities committed by people. And the idea is this. They said, people will think bad of the gospel if they know that a preacher of the gospel did this. And I'm like, dude, you don't have to work at people thinking bad of the gospel. Actually, the good gospel exposes sin and protects the vulnerable. The, the un-gospel covers up danger so more people get hurt. That is, the, that is not good news. That is the insidious conspiracy of the devil to destroy lives. So people think they're protecting the gospel and they're really engaging in a form of Satanism. <laughs> I guess, devil, evil, bad All this to say that what empowered this hiding systemic problems in churches was a fortress mentality. It's that the whole world is out to get us. Psychology, the press, the media, everyone's out to get us, and we need to build up a wall because they're going to hurt us. And there's even a sense of, uh, of machismo, or some people may use the word of, you know, uh, uh, real Christian men type groups, or uh, John Wayneism in the church that has this idea that guys, to be a strong man is to be a bullying coach type person, right? And listen, there's a million ways to be a good, holy man of God. But let me tell you this. It's interesting that the people in the institutions I've seen specifically value like this machismo and this image of tough guy are the most frightened, craven, cowardly groups of people I've ever seen. This, imagine believing that we have the faith of our, our parents. I mean, the faith going back to the early church where husband, wife, man, woman, children all lived under the threat of death if they told the story of Jesus and obeyed Jesus. And they said, forget it. We're going to tell you, per you person who can kill me, we're going to tell you the story anyway because you need to hear it. Because worst case scenario is he kill us and we, get, we, we enter into eternity with God. So the faith of our forebears said, the fortress was not a wall, the fortress was the resurrection. The fortress was Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross is the fortress. Jesus on the cross entered into the invulnerable state of eternity because through dying and through self-sacrifice, Jesus became powerful, and he bequeathed us a legacy of suffering being power. And frankly, if you want to talk about, you know, machismo, or if you want to talk about, you know, being, you know, tough, 
Is there anything more BA? Is there anything more BA than go ahead and kill me? I've got good news for you. Is there anything more courageous than hugging the oppressor? All right? So you want, you want to be manly? Don't, don't play the narrative of us against the city. Play the narrative. Don't play the narrative the world is going to get us. Play the narrative of washing the feet. Pray the narrative of praying for the peace of your city and become their servants. Be Daniel in this book we've been reading. So fortress mentality is something I grew up with. You know, I hear so many uh, conservative Christians or whatnot people complaining about cancel culture. And I'm like, all I can remember is I complained about. I, I, I protested, signed petitions against the airing of The Last Temptation of Christ, which was a great marketing plan for the movie The Last Temptation of Christ. It was one of the more boring movies about Jesus out there. But uh, I was all about shutting down the voices. Cancel this being taught in schools. Cancel this, this, this. And the Bible says you sow what you reap, and it seems like whether you're left or right now, everyone's got their form of cancellation brings safety. Fortress mentality. Both are guilty. I've been accused to have people leave this church thinking I'm just some uh, liberal, left-wing, Democrat weirdo or something. And it really upsets me because I ain't a joiner. I want to give you an example. Like, I am not a fan. You know what? I have a, I have a very complex equation in so many different issues I look at. And I try to think, which world leader, which potential leader is going to be responsible for less people dying? Because I don't think we've had a leader of our nation or any nation that isn't complicit in innocent people dying in the history of humankind. So by that nature, I could never be enthusiastic about someone who has a body count. So, and also, I freaking love the Bible. I love the story of God. And you want to see the Bible desecrated, you know who does it amazing? is Democrats and Republicans. Man, they mess with my scripture, and I love my Bible. Don't mess with my Bible. You know what, I, I mean, I hate the Bible verses. The Bible verses make you stupid. That's actually something I'm writing up later. Is it makes people take things out of context and de-story the Bible. I just wish we'd read books at a time. Binge read, listen to. Anyway, so I wanna, here's a couple examples. Recently, Joe Biden, which a lot of people said because I, everyone knows, most people know I critiqued so many of the policies that were championed by Donald Trump, and I critiqued so much of what he had to say about women, about minorities, about other people. So they presume, oh, Jeff is, has this political leaning. And I'm just like, no, I, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus' keynote address. If I'm loyal to that, I'm pretty angry at what I see. So let's... Uh, so President, uh, President Biden uh, says this recently regarding Afghanistan. Uh, those, who, those who served through the ages and have drawn inspiration from the book of Isaiah, where the Lord says this, this was, and this is Biden. Whom shall I send? Whom shall go for us? The American military has been answering for a long time. Here I am, Lord, send me. 
Here I am, send me. Each one of these women and men of our armed forces are the heirs of that tradition of sacrifice, of volunteering to go into harm's way, to risk everything, not for the glory, not for profit, but to defend what we love and the people we love. Friends, the Isaiah, Prophet Isaiah was the least patriotic Israeli you would ever meet. He was the most, I think out of, well, he has some close rivals, but he's the best critic of his country's military policy. He, the idea of giving a stamp of approval, I'm, and listen, I'm not saying what policy and what military policy is gonna sort this out. I don't think we even know what's gonna sort it out. But I'm saying this, to use Isaiah to rubber stamp one group of people when he was the greatest critique of the chosen people of God to publish? Dude, I don't know. I mean, I have misused scripture in so many ways. But man, precious President Biden has performed a mic drop on Bible mutilation. But uh, I don't really have this critique of Trump. Partly, I mean, I have suspicions, but partly because I think to misuse scripture, you have to read it. And I, he's confessed that he's not much of a reader of things, I mean, in his own words. So, but he, he found a way to kind of, I think, desecrate the Bible without having to open a book. And that's it, he posed holding an upside down Bible. It kind of looked like he was holding a dirty diaper to me, but maybe that's my bias, apart from his heart. And he said, this is a Bible for a photo op where they just, that pushed a bunch of people outside of this church away with flashbangs in the military and the police. And then he poses with the Bible that he holds like a soiled nappy. I said, okay, you didn't have to read any of the book. And by the way, turn it right side up. I mean, it was just, it was, there's no way comedians could parody how ridiculous that was. But Mike Pence, who, um, you know, I have no reason to believe that he doesn't trust Jesus as his savior. Um, I, you know, I think, and that's not saying any, I think you can trust God no matter what political bent you have and maybe not understand his teachings at all. So here is uh, Vice President Pence, who was the, was the reader in chief for the presidency prior to Biden's mutilation of scripture. Uh, he said this. Let's run the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on old glory and all she represents. Let's fix our eyes on this land of heroes and let their courage inspire. And let's fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and freedom. And never forget where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And that means freedom wins. So uh, he did a little mix and match here of scripture. You ever see those books where you have three body parts? And you get the head, the torso, and the legs, and you mix it up, make something ridiculous. Well, he kind of did this with scripture, but then he did play Mad Libs. You know what Mad Libs are? Where you take us, like, put any noun in this area, put a verb here, and it'll take a story, and make it ridiculous. Well, he did Mad Libs and body weird books, flippy thing. He took a passage from 2 Corinthians 3 and a passage from Hebrew 12, Hebrews 12 and he substituted the American flag for Jesus. Um, and this is actually, this is a tactic that has been often used in the New Old Testament. The example of this in the Old Testament was bringing 
Taking the symbol of God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, and bringing it into a pagan temple and setting it before your pagan god that is raised, Dagon, over the Ark. It basically says, we're going to take whatever you worship, have the imagery of that thing you worship, and set something else over what you worship. And so that's, so uh, Mike Pence, God bless him, engaged in this age-old blasphemous practice. So, all that to say is, quit telling me what I believe politically. Stop it. I'm not a joiner. I'm a royalist. I, I'm like, Jesus Christ, how can we as a people who aren't enthusiastic about any person in charge faithfully engage and do justice and love with mercy, walk with humility, and trip and stumble into doing whatever we can do to desperately express the love of Jesus to hurting people? Amen? So, well, I want to read one more thing about fortress mentality, and then I want to read about a section from, uh, I want to read a little section from Daniel. This is Rob White, who's a professor of criminology at the University of Tasmania. Anyone ever heard of the University of Tasmania? No. But he actually deals with uh, criminology and poverty and has written a, a bunch of brilliant stuff about restorative justice versus punitive justice. And it's, those are topics super close to my heart because they're all bible -y, and I like bible -y stuff. But uh, Rob White, I mean, Rob White specifically uh, writes about consequences that give birth to uh, fortress mentality and that are aggravated by fortress mentality. And so this is a from a criminology uh, journal that was uh, published in the International Affairs Journal, I believe published by Oxford Press. So the reason why I'm reading this passage is because I almost feel like it's like his writing style is poetic. I mean, he's just such a good writer. It painted a picture for me. I hope it paints a picture for you. Shortages of food, water, and non-renewable energy sources can trigger nefarious activities involving criminal networks, transnational corporations, and governments at every political level. Illegal and excessive fishing, sidestepping uh, regulations on hazardous waste, uh, water and land theft, uh, fraudulent manipulation of alternative energy subsidies and policies, and transferring toxic deadly products over national borders are driven by a variety of motivations and involve a wide range of actor actors. The consequences of such activities contribute to even more exploitation of rapidly uh, vanishing resources. Skipping forward, um, within a political, economic, and ecological context, and with the preoccupations of the preoccupation of insecurity emerges, and all feeds back into a fortress mentality. The, per, the pursuit of security based on fortress mentality simultaneously follows global crimes, such as everything. So fortress mentality build a wall between us and someone they may infringe upon our resources. The gospel is build a bridge. What I mean about this is we... Bob Dylan said you got to serve someone. I would say if you're going to be afraid of something, be afraid of something that is really fearful. If you're going to be afraid, not all fear is bad. 
And the, the most important, what, well, you know what I, I believe and kind of what I seem to understand the fear of God is? The fear of missing God. The fear of not being aligned to God and his priorities. And the fear of God to this is what if by some way or some omission or some idolatry or some attempt at personal security, I miss the priorities of Jesus, and I missed the opportunity to be lockstep with Jesus against injustice, and I missed an opportunity to express the kindness of Jesus. You know, if we want to fear someone, we should not fear, the Bible says, do not fear those that can hurt the body, but hear what can destroy the soul, and you want to destroy your Christian soul, is don't align your soul with Jesus and say you follow him. That will be, that cognitive, that anyone who believes in a concept of a Christian nation or a Christian empire has married themselves to the idea that will corrupt and destroy their experience of God. So, <laughs> wait until you see this bit. There is, I've been in Facebook discussions like back in 2015, I remember or I forget, it was one of the refugee crises, and uh, there was a debate going on, and someone's, I said something about the importance of welcoming refugees uh, from the Middle East, you know, it, both, both Christian and Muslim, specifically, you know, the amount of our brothers and sisters, a lot of people who actually are loyal to the exact same story of ours that were executed, executed in Egypt that we did not allow in our country, that we used to have a mechanism for welcoming them. We did not welcome these persecuted people regardless of faith, all right? And I was saying, like, the more I read the Bible and really read it, like, you know, binge read it, double speed, Bible app, boom, boom, boom. Fatherless widow, alien stranger, love those people. Shortcut to looking just like Jesus. The more I read that, the more I realized, listen, I don't know what the perfect system looks like, and I know we have a botched system, but if we're gonna screw things up, let's screw it up on welcome. If we're going to do something and make a mess, let's make a kingdom mess. Let's, let's embrace the chaos. And, he, and someone said, but we can uh, This person who uh, eventually left our fellowship calling, saying I was too political. I'm like, man, a fatherless widow and alien stranger makes me political? I don't know. And I said, listen, instead of saying political, let's say policy. And if I favor a policy that means I get to have a neighbor I get to share Jesus with and share dinner with, darn right I'm going to favor a policy where I can have a neighbor who's come over from another nation that I can share dinner and share Jesus with. I will favor anything that gives that to me. And they'll say, well, you know, there's 3% of those people end up being criminals. I said, so they're basically diluting the percentage of criminals in America. The average American, there's a much higher percentage of average American who is not law-abiding than there are of immigrant is not law-abiding. So simple algebra states the more immigrants, the more law-abiding country you have. So if you care about that, uh, if, you're, if you care about evangelism and spend all this money to try to proselytize people overseas, which I'm all about, why not welcome them here? It's much easier to build long-term relationships around the dinner table where you're footing the bill. So if you care about that, to me it's like, I don't know what's a perfect way, but let's make some mistakes and let's welcome some bad actors because all I know is Christians flocked to the places their persecutors hung out. 
Christians refused prior to announcing, they refused to enlist in warfare, but they would go to every battle place. They would become collateral damage in the place for people battling because they were committing to dressing the wounds of both sides of the battle. That is Jesus. And guess what? People died. You can never be too safe. Well, if they didn't do that, according to Julian the Apostate, one of the final big giant political opponents of Christianity before political opponents of Christianity started saying they were Christians prior to Constantine, uh, Julian the Apostate said, uh, basically said that it's impossible to stop these guys because they love their enemies. You know? Because those people didn't believe you can never be too safe, we're here worshiping God today and having arguments about where safety should play a role in our policies we perform. I'm really excited. Uh, actually, my daughter is flying out uh, Monday to uh, Philadelphia. She, uh, they've invited all the students in her program at University of Chicago to process refugees coming in. And I basically have a daughter who's going to learn all about this and then teach me. So she's, uh, she's processing and doing some job there. I can't wait to learn more because I'm very ignorant about it. Um, so the two things I've heard throughout my career of pastoring is you can never be too safe and phrases that begin with, I'm just afraid that. I'm just afraid that, blah, 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 blah. And that's usually said as a way of confronting, but I think it's a confession. I'm just afraid that, what well, Jesus said, fear not. How can we pray for you? He said, no, that's not what I mean. I'm just afraid that you not taking, like, uh, you not making clear what you think about this issue, if this verse, and you being ambiguous about this and doing this is going to be damaging for this and that. And I would be like, well, I'll tell you what, I can be clear where I'm clear and ambiguous where I'm ambiguous. And I figure as long as I talk about Jesus unconditional love and desire to reform our lives and his Holy Spirit that will continue to heal and grow and equip us, uh, I think we're going to do okay. All right? And it's ironic. Uh, I actually had one person that literally, I mean, it was almost like a tick that they said this because they had this fortress mentality of Christianity that was about winning debates and not loving enemies. And eventually, uh, and it was very hyper-individualistic individual. It was all about me and my personal freedom to do whatever I want. This is a, this person who was my biggest doctrinal critic. And it was actually vexing, in a way, because then that person would talk to a lot of other people. Well, that person actually ended up uh, leaving, uh, unprofess not professing to be a Christian, embracing a form of neo-paganism, and denying Christianity. I don't know where this person's at yet, but they actually ended up pursuing a faith that was all about just me and whatever I want to do, which was consistent. But for those, you know, eight years or whatever, if you're having that conversation every week, it was a little bit rough. Fortress mentality. Daniel 11. So we've got Michael is storytelling to Daniel, and Daniel's mind is breaking. Daniel is afraid and he's confused. In the previous chapter, Michael says, just chill out, just chill out. Uh, I'm confusing you. I'm telling you all these details that one way or another, God is gonna be present within, and you're gonna be good. You're gonna be good. So it's weird, a distressing, understandable vision that people were supposed to say, oh, I'm so encouraged and warmed in my heart. 
and frankly, it's been, cur it's been confusing me for weeks. So Daniel 11, I want to summarize everything up to verse 30. So we have three kings of Persian, a fourth king that's a super big deal that leads something against Greece, and then there's this cycle, verse after verse, between the kingdom of the south versus the kingdom of the north, uniting, dividing, one invades the other, successful, non-successful. I tried to draw it out and sketch it out, and I almost got a migraine. And it made me, and I was actually reading one commentator that took a series of five verses, a real technical like scholar, and said, you know, for you know, hundreds of years of Bible scholarship, no one has been able to figure this one out. And you'll find a lot of preachers and kind of low-level commentaries that say they had, but anyone that's actually lived with this knows less than they did when they started. So, and what I have to think of is the original audience that heard this, when they read this book, when whatever oppressive government they were suffering under, they read this and their imagination was unleashed. And because of the warfare they've seen, because of the empires they've seen, this wasn't just a description of north and south. They imagined the armor that people were wearing. They imagined the cities they were in. They imagined what their faces looked like. When the people who originally read this story, their imagination was, thank you, their imagination was rocked. And they created a movie in their head. And uh, we can grab bits and pieces of it. Now, a lot of commentaries try to explain, this means this person, this means this person, this means this person. And every one of them is probably right about 40% of what they write. But the fact is, some of the descriptions don't match anything we currently know about in history. So there's something bigger going on. So, uh, eventually, uh, the kingdom of the north, uh, is on top at this moment. This is Daniel 30 through 32. And this is where reading this whole confusing bit, I was able to see me in this crazy vision. I saw me. I saw the church. I saw America. I saw Afghanistan. I saw is when I read this part, my imagination was kindled to think about the story of God. It says, the kingdom of the north, he will return and show favor to all those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and abolish the daily sacrifices. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. I mean, I can think of several people that fit the bill here, including historically Antiochus Epiphanes. But then going forward to Daniel 11, uh, 36 to 39, the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is complete, for what has been determined must be take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but he will exalt himself among them all. Now, here's the thing that popped out to me and got me at a heart level and a geopolitical level. Instead of them, he, this king of the north, will honor the god of fortresses, a god unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. You know, he's talking about the, the, the national budget. You know, he's talking about all the access this 
of cash this king has access to, he's going to uh, spend it on this god of fortresses that he worships. And skipping uh, that to the end of the chapter, Daniel 11:45, he will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful and holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one's going to help him. So, God of fortresses. And by the way, uh, here's a way to understand what the Bible talks about God, the Father, and gods. A uh, way we understand is demigods or demons. So, another way to, in contemporary Christian vernacular to call, talk about the God of fortresses is to talk about uh, the demon or the, the, the spiritual evil power of fortresses. All right? And in the Bible, fortress is, uh, is basically your national defense. Your national defense. Uh, uh, it goes, you know, in this passage, siege ramps are described, everything. And what I mean by that is, like, I don't know if there was a literal god of fortresses that we've discovered. Someone can, you know, someone can email me if they do the scholarship. I don't know if there was a literal god of fortresses. But in a literary sense, this god of fortresses is saying, your quest for safety is so often demonic. Your quest for safety is so often demonic. And there would, I know so many people who've been talked out of doing cross-cultural work, serving the poor in other nations, and sharing the gospel of Jesus to other nations. They've been talked out about it, about Christians who caution them about risk and safety. Where did that come from? You know, it talks about the end times and... I think, uh, is it Thessalonians says, while people are crying peace and safety, destruction comes. Anyway, that's, so this God of fortresses, you know, we're in a situation where Afghanistan is falling apart. And, you know, I've heard all these memes that criticize, you know, it's like, you know, what is Biden should be impeached, or this is because Trump selling farm to the Taliban, or this is everyone uh, since 9-11. And actually, it's so much more complex than that. I mean, to tell a ridiculously simple story is there's been foreign policy practices going on since uh, the Middle East was a thing and empires were taking over. This has been, there has been an unbroken path of atrocity in attempts to solve disputes by killing your enemies that haven't worked as long as the human story's been told. And I see what's been going on, and what ha instead of blaming, I need to say, how am I a shareholder in fortress mentality, and how can I be the hand and feet of Jesus? We have done great evil in many ways. In the name of Homeland Security, people of both parties will admit our homeland fortress. Everyone agrees at one point or another that this has been a bad deal, especially if you have to t take your uh, shoes off at the airport. But having said that, I'm not gonna blame anyone. I don't know how this could have worked out. It is a cluster hell breaking loose. But I'm going back to the story I've been reading. I've been back to the story that I wanna make holy mistakes with. And that's the story of welcome. And that's the story of hospitality. He says, you know what? Whatever it takes, let's welcome people. Dinner table. You know, there's been refugee crisis where literally half our churches said, I want to house someone, but we weren't able to give them in the country. 
And just let me say, guys, we, as the people of God, cannot, we can vote, but we can't be joiners in our heart. But we can always be for the policy of welcome, love, and fearlessness. And I hope to God we welcome so many refugees. I hope to Jesus Christ that the church could unite around God's welcome of the oppressed so deeply that thousands of criminals get in our country because millions of victims are cared for. Yeah, and you know what? I want criminals to know Jesus too. I'm a, that, watch the movie Just Mercy and we can talk about that too. Restorative versus punitive justice. So I actually believe Jesus loves them too. And if you, if you love someone, you get, you, you're always for getting proximate to someone you love. And if you love the world, anything that gets you proximate to those guys, you love. So I will say this. As ab I believe this is absolute truth as much as I believe Jesus is risen from the dead. And many people think that's a ridiculous belief. And many people who profess Christ will think of what I'm going to say next is ridiculous. And here's my ridiculous belief that goes up with my ridiculous, awesome belief in the resurrection. It's this. God is always on the side of the oppressed. God is always on the side of the vulnerable. And God is a God that would have you sacrificed all in including danger to welcome those that are hurting. And therefore, I think any place, any country I ever live in, in any resource that country has, I want to be a part of the group that says, there's enough to go around. Let's, let's make some mistakes and welcome people in. Glory be to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So personal note, how does this day again? Guys, we're going to be doing a series, uh, either net, in about two series, we're going to have a whole series talking about fortress mentality in our marriage, fortress mentality in our parenting, fortress mentality. Literally, this geopolitical thing is destroyed. This geopolitical fortress mentality has been behind genocide at times. It's also going to destroy your marriage. It's going to crush your children. It's going to make the church ineffective, and it will make you hate your life. So we're going to celebrate communion because Jesus is our strong tower. Jesus is our fortress. Martin Luther wrote, he was wrong about a lot of things and right about a couple of things, and he wrote, a mighty fortress is our God. Unfortunately, some of his followers meant, so we've got to use violence to protect our God from those people. And that's how we'd be a mighty fortress. You know how God's a mighty fortress? He's a mighty fortress in the Eucharist. We become, we celebrate the fact that a mighty fortress resides inside us when we take the broken body of Jesus and the spilt blood of Jesus and say, mighty is vulnerability and suffering. So on the night Jesus betrayed, he took this Passover meal. He made it all about him. He took the bread and the cup. He says, it's my body, it's for you, I'm unsafe, so you can be healed. And we, set, we do communion pledging allegiance to the king who doesn't play with the other parties. Guys, can we stand? Uh, we have some prayer folks who will line the sides. Uh, listen, first of all, one thing I know everyone needs, everyone needs discernment to know what is your role to play, personally and group-wise. We've got a couple ways uh, that we as a church 
stake our claim in these areas we've mentioned. But where's your role in this? And also, what will it take to wean you off loyalty to any human leader? And I want to say, whether Republican or Democrat or whoever it is, if you view one person's going to make America great or one person's going to give us hope and equate hope or greatness with a human, repent. Repentance is not shame. Repentance means I was wrong. God is merciful. The future's bright. Repent. And I want you to go up to someone praying and or to someone next to you. I want you to repent for any loyalty, past or present, that you have to a figurehead to an empire. And I want someone to pray, God's grace on you. Let's do kingdom stuff. And if you have any other prayer needs, we have people over there to pray for you as well. Let's worship. God bless you.